Hello, network connection, connection available. I think we're on live. Uh, I'm sorry for that we're starting late. There was a little technical problem in the office uh, preparing yes. the uh, printing of the notes. And we're up. I need that one, please. And I guess, can you two share, please? And um, basically, oh, we're going to go through the sponsorships and we'll try to make up for some lost time. Um, uh, nightly co-sponsor, Marina Abramov, in memory of her father, Eliyahu Ilusha Abramov Zichrona Levracha. Okay, and then you have uh, on the title, uh, memory of the mother of, um, of uh, Michael Ben Mella, who really is the soul and, and drive of this, entire, of this entire unbelievable program at the Lighthouse Project. Okay, so title, producing soul oil to illuminate our lives. Oh, here's the modern day issue. So you guys remember how it works. We pick a modern day issue, we talk about it, question it, then we dive off into the mimer, discuss the mystical concepts, and through it come back to the modern day issue. So what is the modern day issue? The modern day issue is that Hasidus gives an unbelievable parallel. Yeah, you just have to take out the staples, they're all upside down. Um, uh, so the uh, parable is as follows, that one goes ahead and builds himself a house. And in that house, um, he or she builds the most comfortable rooms, comfortable appliances, most comfortable furniture. Everything is beautiful. One thing they forgot to put in, a light system. So obviously the comfort is diminished greatly. Having a uh, living in darkness versus living in light is not just a difference of a little detail, it's a difference of everything that you're experiencing is experienced differently and less. By the way, that is the secret of Shabbos candles. The secret of Shabbos candles, it says, is to bring peace into the home. Because the balabusta, the woman prepared everything so beautifully, and in those days they didn't have electric, and you couldn't light a candle on Shabbat. So if you wouldn't light the candles before Shabbat, you'd be sitting having the Shabbat meal in the darkness. And thus, it would be very uncomfortable. So in order to enjoy the experience and to have it with inner peace, you light Shabbos candles. That's the physical reason of why we light Shabbos candles. Now, let's take it to what we are going to talk about. When you're talking about someone who does mitzvot, does his religious observances, and each one of the living observance, each one of the mitzvah observance and the Torah study is building the house. The action builds the house. And all the different mitzvahs represent the different rooms and different appliances and different furniture. However, doing all of that and building for yourself a mansion, a spiritual mansion, what's about the light? How do you turn on the light? the warmth, the light, how do you bring the Shama soul into it? Prayer. So now, no, not just, we'll talk about that today. But what the point over here is, that how do we get our soul oil? The light comes from the Nishama. It comes from our soul. So while we're physically doing it, if we can't bring our soul oil into it, we've built a dark and cold mansion. A mansion, but dark and cold. If we can bring our soul oil into it, then we're turning on the light and the warmth in the mansion that we built. 
So now the question is going to be how exactly do we produce the oil, the soul oil. Thus the title, Producing Soul Oil to Illuminate Our Lives. This is built on a mimer the Rebbe said in 1965 on the Shabbos in which the Rebbe explores the opening commandment of our Torah portion, which is to produce olive oil for kindling the menorah in the tabernacle and the holy temple. So I just want to share with you that this Torah portion practically does not belong here. It's two verses out of nowhere. I mean, follow the, the line of thought here. Last week, we spoke about building the tabernacle. This week, we're talking about preparing and making the garments of the high priest and the priest. And then we go into the inauguration process when they first became priests. The whole process with the blood and the, and the sacrifice, and the yada yada, right? Out of nowhere, just stick in two verses. Mind you, if you were going to stick in these two verses, stick it in last week by building the menorah. Why now when you're about to talk about the garments? And out of nowhere it says, and you shall command. Who is the you? Moses. Command to take olives, crush the olive, and produce from it oil, which will kindle the menorah. Practically speaking, the menorah was kindled before sunset, and it had to burn until the morning. Okay? Now... A little side note, which is not on my notes. You know that this week always turns out to be the birthday and the day of passing of Moshe. The yard said of Moshe was on his birthday. He said in Deuteronomy, today I am 120 years old. And that was on the seventh of Adar. Now, Moses told God by the golden calf, we're going to read about it next week. What did he tell God? God said, Leave me and I'm going to annihilate the Jewish people because they made the golden calf just 39 and a half days after I told them you shall not have no idols. I am God your God. Moses hears the word leave me. So he, he sees the opportunity not to leave God, whatever that means. So not leaving God alone. He goes ahead and he doesn't just pray for them. He puts the ultimate ultimatum. And he says, and if you will not forgive them, Erase me from your book. Now you're understanding that Moses had nothing else but the Torah. Moshe is not called Moshe Avinu, Moshe Hanavi, Moshe Hamelech. He's called Moshe Rabbeinu. And the Torah is called Torah Moshe. Torah Tzivalanu Moshe. Thus you have this issue where Moshe Rabbeinu says, Erase me from your book. It's not a simple story. And therefore, even though God did forgive the Jewish people and did not annihilate them, the words of the righteous, even if they're dependent on a condition, have to manifest themselves. Thus, in this week's Torah portion, is the only Torah portion from the birth of Moses that you don't have Moses' name mentioned. Therefore, it doesn't say what it always says. And God said to Moses, speak to the Jewish people. It says, and you shall command, and they shall take unto you. So that's how the Torah portion starts with two verses basically telling us that you have to kindle the menorah. The Rebbe focuses on the deeper mystical meanings of the olive, the oil, and the crushing the olive. And from that we're going to learn how to produce soul oil. Okay? As an introduction, I want to take you to the two verses and just share with you some of the explanations of what the words mean. So let me read it to you. Okay, you have it there on the bottom of page one. And you shall command the children of Israel, and they shall take to you pure olive oil, crushed for lighting, 
to kindle the lamps continually in the tent of meeting, which is another name for the Mishkan, the uh, tabernacle, outside the dividing curtain that is in front of the testimony. So you have the back room, which is the Holy of Holies with the Ark, the front room where you have the table, the menorah, and the golden altar. Aaron and his sons shall set it up before the Lord from evening to morning. It shall be an everlasting statute for their generations, for the children of Israel. Now let's dissect the verse. This is not a total dissection, but let's just see what, what, what's going on. So let's quote some words. And they shall take to you. Right? What does that mean? They are to bring the oil to Moses. Why? Look at the next verse. What does it say? Aaron and his sons shall set it up before the Lord. So why are we bringing the oil to Moses? And Moses is going to give it to Aaron and his sons. Just give it straight to Aaron and his sons. Just like they gave all the other products straight to the people that were making the clothing, straight to Batsalel who was in charge of the building. I mean, why bring it to Moses? Number one. Let's go to the next concept. Pure, right? It says pure. So there's an argument between Rashi and the Evan Yisrael, the Evan Ezra. Rashi says that the, he, he clarifies that the word pure goes on the oil. Because in the oil you can have sediments. So don't do that. Have pure oil. Nothing in it. No sediments in it. Okay? And then what happens? The Evan, the Evan Ezra says, no. Learn it that is talking about the olives. Pick the right olives. Not olives that were partially eaten up by worms or not ripe or, or spoiled or not fresh. An interesting argument. What's the deeper meaning of this argument? Whether when it says zach, whether it goes on the zayat or whether it goes on the shaman. The oil or the olive. Another thing. Crushed for lighting. Crushed. Rashi says that the word crushed has a specific meaning. It means that you didn't put it like in a mill where you just grind them, but rather you had to put it into a bang. And it says, and Rashi learns out from here, that only the first drop could be used for the menorah. The second press could be used for the meal offerings, flour and oil, but not for the menorah. And he uses the word tipa rishona, first drop. What's going on here? Number one, why first drop? Number two, what is the deeper meaning to this? Okay. Now, next, to kindle the lamps continually. Well, we have a dichotomy here. First it says, in the first verse it says, to kindle the lamps continually. Continually should simply mean round the clock. Just like the verse says that the fire and the altar has to be round the clock, it can never go out. So to the menorah, it should never go out. Go to verse number two, shall set it up before the Lord from evening to morning. What is it? Tumid? Or is it Me'erevad Boker? What do they both represent? Questions, okay? And now, let's begin the lecture. You have the introduction, the two verses, what we learn out of these verses, the different opinions of pure, what's going on here. Okay, so I'm going to list off the um, topics, the five topics that we're going to talk about as they present themselves in the Mimer based on Kabbalah and all the other teachings of Chassidus, and then we'll get back to the practical issue. How do we bring some soil, soul oil to illuminate that which we do in our life.
Okay? Number one, who is the olive and who is the oil? You know that in Hasidus we talk about it over and over in this class. Olam katan zeha adam. The macroscopic world and the microscopic world and the, everything of the macroscopic world is represented and reflected in the microscopic world. And thus you always have every single Hasidic mimer is going to tell you how this story becomes a spiritual story concerning us and our lives individually. Thus within our lives there is an olive, there is an oil, and you got to crush the olive to get the oil out. So the first issue is who is the olive and who is the oil? Number two, pure olives and pure oil, right? I told you the argument between Rashi and the Eben Ezra. When the verse says, Shemen Zayez Zach, olive, oil, pure, what does the pure go on? The olive or the oil? Both opinions. Next, first drop. What is the deeper meaning from Rashi? It has to be crushed, not grinded. It has to be the first drop only. Why? Then the next one is crushing it. What is the process of crushing it on the spiritual level, the individual, personal, spiritual level? And then finally, illuminating the outside. Okay? All right. And now let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So, there's an argument which I shared with you that the olive and the oil, right? The, the argument of the Ibn Ezra and Rashi is going to depend on another argument. And that is, what is the olive and what is the oil? There's two opinions to be found in Kabbalah and Hasidus. One is a very simple one. The oil is the soul, and the olive is the body in which the soul is encased. Now, the soul is spiritual, holy, and selfless. The body is egocentric. The body's paradigm, the animalistic soul, is egocentric. It's all about self. It deals with darkness. It drives for desires and pleasures, which lead to sin. In this picture, it's very simple. In order to get the olive oil, you got to crush the olive, which is concealing the olive oil. And thus, the Rebbe quotes the Zohar that says, oh, a piece of log, wood, that doesn't catch on fire, you splinter it. So too the body that doesn't catch on fire by the light of the soul, splinter it. And what does it mean, splinter it? You know, in Hasidus, there's zero tolerance for us to start fasting and torturing ourselves. In the old days, they used to do that. There were great men that used to roll in, in anthills to get bitten. Red anthills used to roll in the snow. They used to fast. There were those that did that. They had that spiritual journey to, to break the courses of the body so that the soul can really, you know, shine. Make the, make the body not so opaque, a little more transcendent, a, a little more transparent. But in Hasidus, we don't have tolerance for that. The Alter Rebbe said that if it was within his power, he would take away even the obligatory fast. But he can't. But definitely don't do extra fasting. So therefore, when, when he asked the Rebbe, when we were going through a hard times, the whole story with the Svarim, the holy books from the Rebbe, and, and all the Rebbes, they suggested to proclaim a fast. And the Rebbe answered, I fast enough for me and for you. Don't fast. Say to him. Say Psalms. So in other words, what does it mean when it says splinter the log, i.e. splinter the body? We're talking about the ego, the arrogance, the narcissy. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about hurting yourself. You can be uh, the greatest egomaniac and then bang your head in the wall. So what do you do? 
You didn't splinter nothing. Right? So therefore, that makes sense. That's one opinion. But then there's another opinion. The other opinion says you can look at the oil as it's trapped and in the olive. So then the olive is a problem. It's lower than the oil and it's blocking the oil. Or you can look at the olive as the source of the oil, which means that the olive is even greater than the oil. Thus, you have the level of the oil, the soul, and then you have the source. And in Kabbalah, we're going to explain this as the oil in Kabbalah represents Chachma, the emanation of wisdom, the first and highest of all the ten emanations. And the olive, which is higher, the source of, represents the supernal crown. So the permeating light begins from the brain down. So you have wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and then you have the emotions. The crown goes on top of the head. It's not permeating, it's encompassing. Now the question is, that if we're talking about the olive as bitter, an olive is bitter, then, and we also referred it to darkness, how can we say this according to this opinion? We also have to wonder, what, what's the crushing of the olive? So to back up a moment, I just want to tell you, there's an interesting Gemara, and I quoted it here. The Gemara says, and by the way, till this very day we do this. Rabbi Yochanan said, just as eating an olive causes one to forget 70 years of Torah study, by the way, 70 years means a lifetime. The verse says, Yemeshnatehem, the days of their, of their years is 70 years. Worth of Torah study, olive oil restores 70 years worth of Torah study. And by the way, till this very day, there are many people that Friday night, they put olives on the table. You always put a little bit of olive oil. Because the olive, according to the first opinion, represents the other side, the darkness, the ego, the husk, the klippa. Shikha, forgetfulness, comes from the other side. Thus, the olive causes to forget. The oil represents the soul, holiness. From there comes remembrance. Now, when you carry this into the second opinion, we got trouble here. Because now we're going higher than oil. And the answer is, remember I shared with you once the reason we call God nothing and us something? We say God created ex nihilo, something out of nothing. Well, before he created, it was only him. So creating something out of nothing means we're something, he's nothing. So we share that the reason Kabbalah does that is because God defies any of the properties that we call a something. So he's not, not even a something. He is beyond something. This darkness that we're talking about is because it's on a level which transcends beyond any light that could be revealed. Thus we have in Psalms chapter 18, Yoishev Choyshe Sisroi, and in English that is, that's made, he made darkness his hiding place. Thus we're referring to the darkness of the olive according to the second opinion that it transcends beyond any light. Now, okay, so we understand why we refer to the olive as bitter, why we refer to the olive as, as dark, because for us, we're to receive and to appreciate, to experience, we have to have light. So we're calling this dark. It's, it's something that transcends beyond anything that can be light. However, there is another question here. The question is, what is the commandment to crush the olive if the olive is the supernal crown? 
If the Aleph is the ego, we already quoted from the Zohar, the log that doesn't let itself be ignited, splinter it. The body that doesn't let itself be ignited by the soul, splinter it. Okay, so I get it, crush it, splinter it, break the ego. But if we're saying that the Aleph is higher than the oil, the oil is wisdom, the highest of the ten emanations. Then you have the supernal crown, which is above, from which comes any of the emanations. What are you crushing the supernal crown? What, what does that mean? We're going to keep this question, but we're going to have to first explore some more of what the olive is and what the oil is and what the crushing is, and then we'll understand it. Okay? Okay, so let's go to the next thing. B. The pure olive and the pure oil. So I quoted to you that there's the argument, the difference of opinion between, we're on page three, the difference of opinion between Rashi and the Evan Ezra. Rashi says the oil has to be pure, no sentiment. And the, um, and, and the Eben Ezra says that it is the olive that has to be pure. Now we'll understand how to connect these two. Rashi, who holds like the second opinion, that the olive is the supernal crown. Not only the olive, the olive comes from that higher than high. We're not worried about any bad olives. Of course it's pure. Even about Silus, which is lower than the supernal crown, it says, there can exist no evil there. The supernal crown. So he's not worried about the olives. But the oil that comes from the olives may have sediments. And we'll talk about what that means. But the Evan Ezra, he says the olive goes on, the klipa, the other side, the body, the egocentric. Thus he says, be careful, pick the olives. Now, what do you have to pick the olive for? We know that the olive is, uh, you know, an arrogant little boy. Why do we have to be careful? We're going to crush it. Here's the teaching that's amazing. So you know that when we were ordered to, we were commanded to conquer the land of Israel, we were commanded to conquer ten nations. There's one nation that we're not, we're not commanded to conquer, but to annihilate. And that's one of the hardest, I mean, Judaism doesn't, doesn't, it's not the religion of the sword. What's going on here? So I can only share it with you on a higher level of Hasidus. Amalek was the first one that attacked the Jews. Amalek cannot be corrected, subdued. It cannot be refined or elevated or transformed. Thus, we have to apply the law that we find in the Mishnah concerning a vessel that becomes impure. If it's a vessel made out of wood, if it's a vessel made out of metal, if it's a vessel you put in the mikvah. You have to kosher it. You know, you either kosher it by putting it into fire or you kosher it by putting it into boiling water, depending what you used it for. But what happens with earthenware? What's the law of earthenware? The law of earthenware is that you cannot, you cannot purify it by putting it in the mikvah, the ritual bath. And you also can't kosher it, simply because the property of, of earthenware is it absorbs, it doesn't give out. So what do you do? So the Mishnah says... However, it's impure, but if you break it, and it's no more a vessel, so then when you rebake it, it's a new vessel. If it's not a vessel, it can't become impure. 
A plain piece of rock can't become impure. It's only when it's useful as a vessel. So make it non-vessel, and then that's okay. From this, the sages said, Shvirosoi zuhi takanosoi. It being broke, broken, is the way you can elevate it. Now, who is Amalek? Amalek is chutzpah. What is the definition of chutzpah? I wanted to look up the exact definition. By the way, there's a, there's a joke about what chutzpah is. Chutzpah is that a guy kills his father and mother, he comes to court and he tells the judge, have mercy, I'm, a, I'm an orphan. That's chutzpah. But what does it mean literally? I actually looked it up. And it says as follows. The definition I found is shameless audacity impudence. Impudence? Impudence. Impudence, I'm sorry. Impudence. Chutzpah has no tikkun. If someone's driven by a desire, someone's driven by a paradigm, someone's driven by an emotion, we can talk. But a person who has chutzpah, you can't talk. Because the, the greater the person is, the more he has to have chutzpah to them. There's no... So now follow what the Ebenezer is saying. He's saying when the verse says, pick pure olives, he's telling you, be careful with your body. Be careful with your body's paradigm. Be careful with the arrogance and the narcissism that it doesn't reach the level of chutzpah, which then even crushing it won't help. It needs to be completely broken until it's a non-identity, period. It's no more a vessel. But that's because he says the olive is the body. He's worried about it. Rashi says the olive is the supernal crown. He's not worried about it. Now you understand how those two opinions goes. And now we understand the two opposite opinions of the olive. Whether the olive is higher than high, the source of the oil, then we have to know why we have to crush it. Or the olive is the body which hides and locks in the oil. Now, our Rebbe is the one that always does this. He always connects the highest with the low. So the Rebbe, blessed memory, says that because the highest descends to the lowest, nothing else could descend that low. Thus, we understand the connection between the two interpretations. Because it's the supernal karam, because it's spiritual darkness in the sense of beyond light, thus it can fall into what we call darkness, which is the opposite side. Okay? So let's go further now. So now we understand what is the olive. We understand that the olive is either the klipa, the other side, the arrogance, that which leads to sin, or it's the higher than high, the source of any revealed light, oil. We're now understanding in, in Kabbalistic terms what that means. We're understanding that the olive, according to the said so according to the opinion that's higher than high, that's the supernal crown, that's darkness. While wisdom, no matter how great wisdom is, it's the emanation of wisdom. What's the definition of the word emanation? Light. Okay? Okay. Obviously the question gets even stronger. If Rashi's not even worried about the, uh, the olive, the supernal crown, you don't have to worry about whether it could or can't be bad because there is no bad on that level. What's the crushing about? Get back to that question again, according to that opinion. Okay? All right. To understand this, we need to understand what is the first drop. Rashi says 
that when you press it, only the first drop can go to the menorah. Don't press it again, don't mix the oil, because the rest of the oil can at best go to the meal offering. Okay? Let's understand what it means. And here's where we're gonna take out this paper for a moment. The Alter Rebbe says, first drop, that's, only, that's the only thing that's good for the kindling in the menorah, is the first letter of God's name, which is the Yud. And obviously you saw I put lines in between it, because you can't write God's name. Okay? So according to Kabbalah, God's name is the following. Contraction, expansion, contraction, descent, expansion. Now look at the letters and you'll physically see it. Yud is a contraction, a dot. He has both width and height. That's expansion. You look at the Vav. What is a Vav? A Vav is a Yud with a line down. So the Yud is again contraction. That's contraction number two. And it's also the descent. Then once it's descent, it's descended, then you have the second He which is the expansion on our level. Okay? Now, to understand this, Dr. Rebbe explains that there's two types of contractions. In Kabbalah, anyone that, that dabbled a drop with Kabbalah loves using the word timtum, timtum, it's a biggie. What's timtum? Timtum means contraction. What was the contraction? So one form of contraction is that you have to pull away the higher, the essence, and then even of the lower, you only give the external expressive. Let's make sense of this. So the first thing God did was a contraction. What's the job of the contraction? The job of the contraction is to pull away the infinite light. We want to finite universe. We can't have an infinite light here. And even of the finite light, pull back the essence and give only the external expression. Now we have a playground in which we can create a finite universe without it shattering from infinite light. Right? You're gonna plug in a, a, a 220 appliance into some, you know, the, the air conditioning one, the whatever it is, the big, it's gonna blow, it's gonna blow a fuse. Hashem wants a finite world to run with finite laws of nature, and if the infinite light is there, it's gonna make a mess. It's not gonna happen. So that contraction is completely pulled back and give only a minute drop of the external expression of the finite. There's a different type of contraction, which is the Yud. The Yud, its job is not to contract by removing, but rather it's like our sages say, Le'olam, you should know that always you should teach in a concise way. Make it concise. That's why when you look at the Talmud, how does the Talmud work? First you learn a Mishnah. What is the Mishnah? Rabbi Yehuda Nasi wrote a six orders broken into tractics, broken into, into um, uh, uh, chapters, broken into Mishnah. Mishnah means a law. Most of the Mishnah is set up as case law. Right? Famous one. First one is Shabbat. If the rich man sticks his hand out of the window and gives the poor man, or the poor man sticks his hand in the window and they pull out the food, it's not, right? That whole case of carrying from the inside to the outside on Shabbat, it doesn't say you're not allowed to carry, rather it gives it case law. Now what happened? Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi himself, if you look in the introduction of Maimonides, it says that he brought his own book to Yeshiva, 
where he was the Rosh Yeshiva, he was the dean. And then he would learn a Mishnah with his students and start extrapolating and dissecting and telling you everything that lies hidden within this Mishnah. And then what would happen? His greatest student, Rabkhiya, would sit down and write notes, and that became the famous Brighter, and so forth and so on. And eventually those Brighters were gathered together by Rav Ashi, and the Talmud was created. So what really happens is you have a very short Mishnah, case law, and then you have pages and pages of Talmud, which takes phrase by phrase of that Mishnah, dissects it, explains it, and goes ahead and extrapolates from it. However, there's nothing in the Talmud that wasn't in the Mishnah. Thus, after you finish learning all the pages of the Talmud on this Mishnah, you relearn the Mishnah, and now you see how everything you just extrapolated and dissected and explained is within the Mishnah. A lot of times I explain it as the difference between the, uh, the sperm and what happens by the mother. The sperm has the, the entire DNA ladder in it. But if you don't extrapolate it and actualize it, you don't have a child. The Mishnah, so to speak, is, is like the sperm. It's like the father. The Talmud is like the mother. In nine months of pregnancy, we're going to build out of it. But there's nothing in the baby that wasn't in the sperm because in the sperm was the DNA. I'm just giving you a loose example. The Mishnah is the same way. So here when we talk about tzimtzum, contraction, we're not talking about removing. Rather, we're talking about concise. A way to be able to transmit everything without blowing it up because little by little it will begin to dissect. And thus we have the famous teaching that it takes 40 years of study for a student to fully understand the teaching of his Rebbe. The Rebbe represents not just in, in quantity, but in quality. And he's trying to give his understanding, his teaching of the Torah to the student, which is a, a different quality. If he tries to explain what he's thinking, the kid's not going to get it. But he doesn't want to not give everything to the kid because eventually the kid has to grow up with this. So find a way to create a Mishnah, give it all, and then the student will be the Talmud, extrapolating. Thus we now understand what the Alter Rebbe is saying here is that there's a difference between the Yud and the Vav. The Vav also has a Yud on top. There's a difference between the first drop for the menorah and the second drop for the meal offering. Kabbalistically speaking, the meal offering is with the six male emotions through the ninth. You have the three intellects, right? And then you have four, five, six, seven, eight, nine are the six male emotions. And then you have the recipient, the feminine mystique. So the, when we talk about the meal offering, we're talking about the second drop. We're talking about the second contraction, the one that pulls back and doesn't allow out, but are minute. That's the way the six male emotions, which are called small faces, small, transmit the minute outside external expression of the finite to malchut, kingship, which is the recipient. Rashi is telling us that's not what's happening when we talk about the menorah. The menorah is not the meal offering. The menorah is Tipa Rishayna, the first drop. What is that first drop? 
The first drop is the symptom, the way I explained it, like the Mishnah. The Yud of God's name, that first letter, is not holding anything back. It's just finding a way to make it concise, digestible, and then later you'll go ahead and dissect and extrapolate. In other words, when you're talking about the oil, which is wisdom, which comes from the source of wisdom, we're talking on those high level, we're talking on those supernal high levels in which we don't want to hold back. We're going to overcome the problem by finding a way how to give everything but in a drop. Thus Rashi is telling us, understand, when we talk about our issue of how to bring soul oil, we're not talking about epis, a shtikl, a this, a that, an offspring of a, of a pale reflection of the soul. No, we want to take the soul oil, the essence, and bring it into kindling our lives, illuminating our lives. So now we understand what we're talking about here. Let's go further. Okay. Now we need to talk about what the crushing is. Right? We're on page four. On page four, we're going to now talk about what does it mean to crush in order to get the first drop. To get the first drop, we have to crush. Not grind, but crush. And we're talking now on the level of the higher one. Let's understand it. The supernal crown has to be crushed in order to give us the lower level of Chachma. What's going on here? So to understand this, we're also going to explain the question that I asked you previously. Who they bring the oil to? Moses. Why did they bring it to Moses if Aaron has to light it? What's the extra step for? Moses didn't have enough what to do. He had to get involved with the oil too. And the answer is as follows. There is a teaching that says as follows. Moshe Rabbeinu must experience Teshuvah. Why was Moshe Rabbeinu experience Teshuvah? Now, just that you know, even though we say that Moshe Rabbeinu, we simply, you know, you learn with kids, Moshe Rabbeinu hit the rock. Well, that's a sin. God said, speak to the rock. Chassidus explains it was no sin. It was self-sacrifice. What did God tell him? I'm not letting you into Israel. I'm punishing you. Why am I punishing you? Because you hit the rock. I told you to hit the rock the first time. But the second time I told you to speak to the rock. And you hit it. And because of that, I was not sanctified. Really? Really? Anyone but God can bring water out of a rock? Whether you hit it, or you, you jump on it, or you speak to it. What's the difference? God's name wasn't sanctified. So our sages explain that God told Moses... I want to be able to tell the Jewish people, this rock, there's no hell and there's no heaven. And it listens to me. Doing the opposite, producing water. You, who I'm commanding to be who you're meant to be, and you know that there's purgatory and there's heaven, how could you not listen to me? Thus Moses knew what God was going to do with this. He didn't want to give God the opportunity to ever have that over the Jews. So he didn't give the rock an opportunity to listen without being hit. That's the mystical teaching in Kabbalah and Hasidus about what Moshe Rabbeinu did. So to make the long story short, Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't sin, 
didn't sin, Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't need to do teshuva. Repentance, returning from what? And nevertheless, the Alter Rebbe says clearly that Moshe Rabbeinu has to do teshuva, and he quotes the famous words, to bring tzadikayu l'tiyufto. To bring the tzadik, the righteous one, l'tiyufto, to doing teshuva. Almost the same question like we had before. Why does his eternal crown need to be crushed? Why does Moshe Rabbeinu need to do teshuva? In order to understand this, we need to explain what teshuva is. Most of us grew up thinking that teshuva is something you do when you sin. Right? And I remember as a child thinking, what in the world is the Rebbe doing on Yom Kippur? <laughs> no sins, no teshuva. What's going on here? And then you start learning Hasidus. Teshuva means return the hay. Right? Toshuv, hay. Return the hay. For those of us that sin, that means that the second hay, which is what we have within us, when we sin, we pulled away the hay from where it belongs. We schlepped it into the dirt, into the sewer, into the other side. Teshuva, bring back the hay. And how do you bring back the hay? By two steps. Number one, you have to not do the action anymore. Stop the action of sin. That breaks the body of the imprisonment. And then the bitter remorse breaks the soul of pleasure that we had when we sinned. And that's how we bring back the hay. Tosh of hay. But then there's another teshuva, which is the higher teshuva, the first hay. There's two hays in God's name. On the higher level, what is teshuva? Teshuva is not for the sins I did. Teshuva is for the mitzvahs I did. The sages say the word teshuva umasim tovim. Teshuva and good deeds. And we learn out from here that good deeds need teshuva. Why? The answer is returning to God for a tzaddik means there is no form of self. Now that form can even be a holy form. And that's why you'll find in Hasidus over and over that Mitzrayim means constraints. Normally we talk about the constraints the body and the evil inclination has over us. And then you find the language Mitzrayim di Kedusha, the Egypt of holiness. And what that means is that as long as you have some form to you, as spiritual and as holy as it may be, it needs to do teshuva. Teshuva is to remove the entire fingerprints of an identity of self so that it becomes nothing more than an extension of God. Our sages tell, tell us, honor the mitzvah because it is my will. Thus you have to stand when you do a mitzvah. You don't sit when you shake the lul of an esrik. You don't sit when you, when you light the Shabbos candles. You have to stand. Honor the mitzvah. Why do you have to honor a mitzvah? Because the mitzvah is the will of God. He and his will is one. However, when I do the mitzvah, it becomes about me. Even the holiest of the holiest, it's about his former shape. Not in the egocentric way. Not Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, I, I did this. No. But Moshe Rabbeinu, you remember how he questioned God the first time he was sent? He questioned God. You told me to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. 
and it only got worse. He stopped even supplying them with the supplies, and now it got worse for them. What was Moshe Rabbeinu questioning? That wasn't a sin. Moshe Rabbeinu, God gave him the gift of wisdom. Avram Avinu was kindness, Yitzchak was awe and justice, Jacob was compassion, Moshe Rabbeinu was chachma, or das. Thus Moshe Rabbeinu, his makings was to understand Hashem. Thus he questioned Hashem. Not in ridicule and not in complaint. That means that Moshe had a certain form. Absolute humility. Absolute self-nullification. Moshe Rabbeinu is the one that told the Jewish people when they came and they complained about not having food and they complained about Moshe. Moshe said, whoa, 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 let's stop here. We are but what? It's God. There's no tricks that I did. It's God. And Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to make sure that you didn't see him but God. He wanted to make sure that when he pulled off the manna, it wasn't him. When he hit the rock, it wasn't him. It was, this is what God's doing, through me. But the through me is such an unimportant factor. Thus Moshe Benu was, benachnu ma, we are but what? Thus Moshe Rabbeinu was the absolute humility, was the absolute self-nullification, was the absolute transparency as a conduit to God. And nevertheless, he had a form. By no chance an ego form, but a form. And thus Moshe, by doing teshuva, which means returning to the original formless, there is no form. By the way, not, not jumping all over the place, and, but I just want to explain to you that that is the deeper thing of what happened when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. Avram is kindness. That's your form. Can you step out of your form? Can you do the ultimate contrary to kindness? Thus when Moshe Rabbeinu does teshuva, he takes the transparency of his form and even shatters that. Take it to the next level. I want you to look for a moment here. You see the word Chachma in Hebrew? Chachma, wisdom. You see under that I broke it into two words? Koach, Ma. What does Koach mean? Potential. The Koach of Ma. The Alter Rebbe quotes twice in Tanya, his teacher, the Magid, that says, Chachma is so nothingness, such self-nullification that it houses the infinite light. The bottom line is, Chachma is not Bina, and Bina is not Chachma. There's wisdom and there's understanding. There's two, two total different intellects. One, you rub up the, you roll up your sleeves and you're engaging by divide and conquer. That's understanding. Wisdom is just like when you ask the riddle and like, oh, that's, it's really, there's nothing to be, you know, oh, I got it. Well, you didn't get it from, it's wisdom. It fell from somewhere. Nevertheless, wisdom is not understanding, thus wisdom has a form. Thus we're hearing over here now that even what we consider absolute humility, Moshe Rabbeinu gave up his life for the Jewish people, spiritually and physically, we're hearing that he too does teshuva to take it to the next level 
where Moshe Rabbeinu in all his holiness is not even Moshe Rabbeinu holiness. It's beyond and above. Totally removed from the picture. Absolute transparency to the point where the vessel becomes the light. Thus we now understand two things. We understand that the supernal crown needs to be crushed. Because as long as it's a form, doesn't make a difference how holy it is, it's a form, it needs to be crushed. And now we also understand that the only way we can experience that as a Jewish people is by bringing it to Moses. Because Moses is the only one who before he's crushed with teshuva, he's already absolute humility. Imagine when he goes through the process of crushedness, that's what empowers that what we do shouldn't have our fingerprint stains, our oily fingerprint stains of self, 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 self. Yes, a holy self. Yes, a religious self. Yes, an observant self. Yes, a good self. But self. How can we step out of that? We can't. Bring it to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu takes the oil and transforms it. Moshe Rabbeinu cleans off the fingerprints. Now he gives it back to Aaron. Now you can go ahead and use it to kindle menorah and illuminate. Okay? Let's go further. So we're up to page five here. These pages are all over the place. Okay. So now we understand that teshuva, ultimately the return of teshuva, it's not that we do teshuva for what our sins were. We don't do teshuva just because of our arrogance. We don't do teshuva because of our rebellion. We don't just do teshuva because we've done things that were wrong. We have to do teshuva even for the things that we did right, but still had some form of ego. Thus, ultimately, for the oil to be without sediments at all, we need to go to the source of the oil and make sure it doesn't stand in any form of self. Okay? Now, now we can go to the next thing. One more, one more point I want to bring out, and I want to just explain the verse. The verse says, Kosis lamoir, crushed for lighting. Right? It doesn't say it's crushed to produce oil. Crushed for lighting. So I want to share with you what the Talmud says. The Talmud says, Command the children of Israel that they shall take for yourselves. Right? So the Gemara says like this. When it says that they shall take for yourself, Rab Shmuel Bar Nachmeni said, For yourself, to indicate that it is for their benefit and not for my benefit, as I do not need its light. Hashem doesn't need light. Right? Light, darkness, it's all two equal expressions of His infinitism. So, why the light is for us. Let's go to the next, the continuation of the Gemara. And he made for the house windows narrow and broad. In the book of Kings, by the way, I did a picture here so you can see. In the olden days, it was very important to make the outside of the wall window narrow with it coming in so the light spreads out as much as possible. The holy temple was exactly the opposite. You see here the picture, and then I made an inset. You see how instead of the, the building of the Beis Hamidish being like this, so that the light can shine all over for the Kohanim, it was like this. Thus we say 
that the, men, the job is to for the menorah's light in the holy temple to be kindled and illuminate the outside of the world. What are we being taught here? We're being taught here two things. Number one, you should know that spirituality is not for ourselves. Don't isolate and become holy and then not, no. The mission, the ultimate desire of spirituality is so that we go out into the world. That we go as Jewish businessmen, we go as Jewish doctors, Jewish lawyers, Jewish people in the outside world. When we go on a cruise, we're a Jew. And we always remember that. And our job is to kindle and illuminate the universe around us, the world around us. The second thing it teaches us is that were we to remain to ourselves, we wouldn't have a problem. Were we remain to ourselves without engaging with the outside, we would have no worries of our ego taking us to the wrong place. In a, in a protected environment, we're all good boys and good girls. But the reason why we need to crush and make sure that there's not even in our good deeds ego is because when you deal with the outside, that's going to eventually lead to the ego and narcissism and rebellion that's going to lead to sin. Zalsa says, why curses? Because Lamar. Because I don't want you to keep the spirituality inside. Oh, I am spiritual. No, don't tell me what you've made of yourself. Tell me what you've given the universe, what you've given the world, what have you done for mankind. But if you're going to deal with the outside, you know, you can get dirty. Thus Hashem tells you, don't worry. You can protect yourself. Not by crushing the ego that wants to sin. By crushing the ego that wants to do good deeds. When you're studying, is it about you? When you're doing mitzvahs, is it about you? Or can you remove yourself, your holy self? Can you remove your holy self? Thus the verse says, Kosas Lamor. Now, let's go to the closing. So the question was, page 6. The question was, how do we bring light and warmth into our religiosity and into our spirituality? How do we do that? Remember, we can build a beautiful house, all the greatest amenities, all the greatest stuff, but it's dark. How do I bring light? And the light has to come from the soul. Here it is. We were brought up to be ashamed and remorseful for our sins, however proud of our good deeds. Spirituality is to do teshuva for our good deeds. Light, warmth, and spirituality is through teshuva, and without it, our good deeds built for us an awesome home of comfort. However, it is dark with our form, fingerprints, and insertion of self. Teshuva is what turns on the light within the goodness we do. And now I get very practical. A beautiful practice is to do every day one selfless good deed for another with no recognition of self. In other words, with total anonymity. This will bring into our lives the practice of removing self through teshuva from all our good deeds. Literally, I would suggest to have an accountability partner where you text every single day just the words deeds done. 
and you're not allowed to tell your accountability partner what you did because no, no, it's not. So you, it's going to be interesting. When I went through this process, there are times where I already got into bed and I was like, oh my God, I didn't do it. I got out of bed. I'm not a happy camper. <laughs> I went to Walgreens and I knew that there are people there. I would call one in. I don't like giving homeless people money because I don't know what they're going to buy with it. So I call them in and I buy them food. I go to my, go back to bed, text, D done. And the, the process of why you go through that is to introduce to yourself spirituality. Because true spirituality of light is very simple. It's when it's not about me, it's about the other. And if the good deed doesn't have anonymity, then it's again about me. By the way, this good deed doesn't have to be to a stranger. There are those that make this horrific mistake that think we have to be nice to others, but to our own, <laughs> you know? Sometimes a good deed means that your kids, your grandkids, your friends, someone that you love wants to do something, you're not in the mood, and you just say, okay, this is the deed. You don't tell the person, no, I, want you to, I didn't want to do this. No, 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 no. You sure you want to go? Absolutely, let's go. Just keep on practicing every day one simple good deed. But with anonymity, with the focus of what this crushing of the higher olive, if you're only crushing the lower olive, you're going to eventually slip. If you're crushing the higher olive, the lower olive is taken care of. If our good deeds are being done pure, we won't fall into bad deeds. Thank you very much.